Welcome to today's IFA uh, podcast. And our topic today uh, may sound strange to you. It is what is a plant nutrient? Because uh, many of you may think, well, we know that already. It's in the textbooks. We know what the essential nutrients are or what the beneficial elements for plant growth are. It's been long established and that's the list that we all work off. But in the context of a new paradigm for plant nutrition, I think we need to rethink this question because besides the usual desire to grow crops for higher yield or other uh, characteristics, that now also includes uh, considerations for other services that agriculture provides. For example, more related to human nutrition or the quality of products or even environmental adaptation. So in that context, I think it is uh, very interesting to re revisit this question. And I'm very pleased to have with us here today uh, two speakers who will address this from different angles. Our first guest is uh, Uh, Patrick Brown. Patrick is a distinguished professor of plant nutrition at the University of California, Davis in the United States. And then we have uh, with us Katja Hora, who is the, the research, manager for, research manager for specialty plant nutrition at SQM in Antwerp in Belgium, a company that uh, produces uh, a number of products uh, that also contain various types of nutrients uh, that have nutritional or other value. So to begin with, um, and of course, we'll dig into some of these uh, things a little bit later uh, more deeply. Let's start with a, a bigger picture question here. So Patrick, your own work, your own research uh, published in 1987 on nickel was actually the last time that a mineral element was uh, admitted by the scientific community to the list of essential elements for higher plants. But does that mean that, that we actually know now everything there is to know in terms of which elements are essential or beneficial for plant growth? And why should we actually bother about the definition of plant nutrients now again? Well, thank you, uh, Akim, for that question. Yeah, it is a good question. It's been on our mind a lot recently. The essential elements, which was established in uh, by a criteria established in 1939, over the years they've been identified by producing plants under increasingly strict conditions, removing one element, seeing whether the plant responds and determining what was essential. And that's what we did in the case of nickel. Are there more of them out there? I think certainly there's probably some, there may be some more essential elements, but it's going to be difficult to identify them because they are undoubtedly present in very, very low concentrations. Are there more beneficial nutrients? I think absolutely. And I think as we start to learn more about how the plant interacts with its microbiome, and if we start to think a little bit more about the role of plants as foods for humans, so the quality attributes, I think we'll find more and more examples of nutrients and elements that uh, improve plant growth. So a lot of whether we're going to find an essential element or a beneficial element is going to depend a little bit on our definition of what is a plant nutrient. And I think we're going to get to that in just a little bit. Yeah. So Katya, why is that of interest to you? You, you work in a company. Why do you bother? Well, I, I work in a company, but I work on the development of specialty plant nutrition, which are water-soluble fertilizers, and they contain the macronutrients such as nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, 
but they can also include the micronutrients, eh, like uh, nickel, what uh, Patrick talked about. And also we try to advise the farmers on what is the optimal amount of, uh, of both these macro and micronutrients to use in a specific crop for a specific purpose. And what we see in the field that farmers do use these micronutrients, which are uh, not very well defined from a scientific point of view, like nickel or iodine or selenium or silicium. And we know they are debated in fundamental plant science, but farmers do see positive effects on, on yield or quality of the crop or the crop produce in, in the real time, eh? in the real life in the farmers' fields. However, in some countries, these elements are not included on the list of plant micronutrients uh, precisely because they are still not really well defined by the uh, definition. So this very strict interpretation of a plant nutrient does impact the fertilizer industry and farmers, but also a crop production in, uh, in general, I would say. So Patrick, you and a few others have recently published an opinion paper in the scientific journal Plant and Soil on this very subject, you know, and you're making a case there also for a new definition, which we'll come back to. So, but to start with, then what are the currently used scientific definitions and criteria? Where did those come from? And in scientific terms, what would we now say might be some of the major shortcomings of those? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, the definition of what is an essential element was uh, formalized in 1939 by two researchers at the University of California in Berkeley, uh, professors Arnon and Stout. And that's become sort of the standard by which all plant nutrition and fertilizer regulations have been written. And those uh, criteria are really quite strict. And I'm just going to summarize a couple of them. The first criteria specifies that the plant cannot complete its life cycle in the absence of the element. And that lack of completion of the life cycle has been the gold standard for establishing essential elements at the moment. There's a second criteria, and that is that the response is specific. So one element cannot substitute for another. And the third is that it should be involved in a specific aspect of plant metabolism. You should be able to identify its function. There's several things that are wrong or difficult with that and that don't fully uh, fit with the agricultural context of plant nutrition. Um, the first is, of course, that the life cycle must be completed. And there are many crops and plants and horticultural species where we don't actually complete the life cycle as a normal part of agriculture, vegetatively propagated plants as an example, but certainly grass and ornamentals and vegetables often are not taken all the way through to the completion of life cycle. So that's a constraint which I think is not particularly relevant. The other two, that it's not uh, substitutable by something else, uh, that's relevant, but it overlooks the reality of some of the growing conditions. So there will be natural conditions, low pH soils, extremely high pH soils, soils rich in a particular element, where there may in fact be a degree of substitution of one nutrient for another that's relevant and it's important. And the final one, that it must be uh, participating in some explicit plant metabolism, overlooks uh, the environment in which the plant grows. I mean, the plant does grow, as we know, in the presence of a lot of microbes that are critical for the performance of that plant. Uh, and if a particular element 
functions to support a particular nutrient, a particular microbe that's essential for the plant, then that element itself becomes ben a beneficial nutrient. So there's a, there's a lot of constraints. Uh, I think the definition of essentiality is valuable. It, it does point towards those nutrients that are required by all plants at all times, but where it falls short is it doesn't really address nutrients that are valuable for the performance of the plant, but might not fully meet these criteria. And, and that was the focus of that paper that we wrote, is to look at the full suite of nutrients that influence the productivity of plants, which is our ultimate goal. Yeah, so purists might say, oh, okay, this is all uh, sort of scientific uh, uh, considerations, doesn't really matter for practical purposes, but it does appear that actually there are potential negative consequences that arise if an element is not formally recognized as a plant nutrient or as a you know, essential plant nutrient. So Katja, from, for example, you already mentioned a few sort of commercial implications, but how, for example, uh, would this be dealt with uh, under current EU regulations, for example? Yeah, well, many countries which have a fertilizer regulation which specifies how ingredients in fertilizers can actually be labeled on the bag or in your communication material about the benefits of fertilizers, They have what they call a positive list of micronutrients, which can be identified as micronutrients in a fertilizer. What we see on a global scale, that there is no global authority to say these are the chemical elements which can be on the positive list or not. And it's not only decisions of a regulatory nature, but also other political decisions For instance, decisions on acceptance of uh, proposals for grants to investigate the effect of new elements for uh, crop production. These are guided by a variety of opinions on what or what is not a element which could qualify as a micronutrient for plants. So, of course, this is the way science works. Huh? Evidence is critically reviewed and a debate does not uh, end in conclusions carved in stone. However, when it comes to political decisions, uh, scientific uncertainties are dropped and uh, the decision making requires a simple yes or no answer. Huh? So what, what, what we feel is missing is some, some sort of unified guidance to authorities on who should be like the trusted global scientific voice that would uh, judge if any uh, mineral nutrient uh, should be considered to be a plant nutrient or not. And this ideally would be based on a modern view of plant physiology and a variability in the cropping system, as, uh, as Patrick mentions. So, and additionally, and, and this is actually what should precede these decisions made by a scientific country, uh, council. There we have a need for consensus on what is the type of scientific evidence that uh, a judgment uh, to include or not include this nutrient should be based on. Hey, what, what should it look like? What kind of evidence would it take to come to a conclusion whether or not a nutrient qualifies as something which you put in fertilizers to improve crop production? So if I may just sort of give two quick examples, you know, if we look at the current European Union fertilizing products regulation, for example, an element such as um, chlorine, uh, which in textbooks of plant nutrition is uh, classified as an essential uh, plant nutrient, 
is not called a nutrient uh, in the EU FPR. Or if you look at nickel, uh, which is also considered to be a, um, an essential plant nutrient, the EU in the fertilizer products regulation classifies it actually as a contaminant. Uh, so these are some of the examples of discrepancies. So, but Patrick, there are international standards, uh, organizations like ISO, uh, or also regulators in the US. Uh, how are they trying to deal with these things? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the discussion of the US because there's some interesting history on how regulations in plant nutrition have evolved. So the Environmental Protection Agency regulates all products that are called pesticides. And in fact, all the plant nutrients are listed under that pesticide regulation. However, they have been given an exemption if they are identified plant nutrients. Um, and this becomes really important because the identification of a plant nutrient is strictly limited to those that occur, those that were satisfying the Arnon Stout criteria. Okay. What that means, of course, is some of the other elements that we know are beneficial to plant nutrition and the nutrition of the crop, such as selenium as an example, but silicon as well some other nutrients possibly, they are con still considered as pesticides and must either not be labeled on the bag or excluded from fertilizer regulation. So if you have a fertilizer, a plant nutrient, uh, and it contains elements not on that original list, but you know it is beneficial to the plant, they cannot be sold as fertilizers. Uh, and that makes an artificial constraint. And it is interesting, I've been going back through the history of how this arrived who made the decision of what belongs on or off the exclusion list so that fertilizers are not included as pesticides. And quite honestly, I can't find that. It seems to have been grandfathered in sometime in the 1950s without definition of what's on or what's not on the list. And then it is left to the local um, state regulator to make that interpretation. So just as Katia said, it leaves us in a position where there's, there's no authority. There's nobody to say if we are interested in the nutrition of the plant that is optimizing plant productivity, we need to have a list and guidance to choose what belongs on and what belongs off. Uh, without that, we are left with the artificial constraint that exists in U.S. law. And I am uh, working with the International Standards Organization. This is a topic that they are also discussing. Uh, it seems that same historical approach to developing what is a nutrient, a plant nutrient, what is not a plant nutrient, has been inherited across various regulatory uh, agencies and across various countries. So it would be really wonderful to rethink this and to get away from that really confined list and expand it to plant nutrient more broadly, that is, elements that benefit the productivity of, pl of plants. So let's make it a little bit more uh, concrete and visual to our listeners. There is a, a whole group of elements, uh, for example, sodium, silicon, selenium, aluminum, cobalt, or iodine, which, you know, we know are beneficial in their impact on plant growth and or product quality, but they're currently relegated to what we may call a, a legal and practical no man's land. So let's look at iodine a little bit more, Katya. You've done a lot of work on this. What would you say is the new evidence that would make a, a clear case for it nowadays? Yeah, well, actually, it's new evidence building on some very old 
evidence, uh, funnily enough, because the first publications on iodine as a nutrient possibly beneficial for plants started already in 1904. And since that time, at least 30 crops have been described to positively respond in terms of an increase of biomass or otherwise to the addition of iodine at the micronutrient levels in a nutrient solution. So, in fact, even the, the famous Murashige and Skook vitamin and mineral mix, which was published in 1962, is still used today as a standard plant nutrient addition to media by many plant physiologists. And this actually contains a specified amount of iodine. So someone down the road must have thought it was a useful addition. So up to 1960s, iodine was actually studied for its functional role as a plant nutrient, but this research was seriously hampered at that time because detection of iodine in very small concentrations was technically not possible. Now we know that iodine is taken up actively by plant roots with the highest efficiency at uh, low or micromolar levels of available iodine in the nutrient solution. We know that plants can absorb iodine even from volatile forms in the air. So for that reason, for iodine, it's extremely, extremely difficult to prove the first essentiality criterion, as Patrick mentioned, which is that plants cannot fulfill their life cycle in absence of a nutrient. And this is because it's almost impossible to remove iodine as a nutrient from the environment of the plant. Now, recently, with some support of SQM, a paper was published in February 2021. And this now provides three new types of what we think is quite solid evidence on the mode of action of iodine as a nutrient for plants. It uses Arabidopsis as a model plant for plant physiology. And in this paper, the concentration of iodine in the nutrient solution of the plants was kept to a level below detection of modern equipment, but we could not exclude completely absorption of iodine from the air. So the first line of evidence does focus on plant reproduction. And in the control plants, which were iodine deficient, there was a significant delay in blooming, a re reduction in seed yield of these iodine deficient plants. Second line of evidence was more uh, modern science, as I would say it. Uh, effect of uh, gene expression was uh, examined. And the genomic activity in iodine deficient plants was compared to plants exposed only for a very short time, 48 hours, to iodine in their root uh, zone. So this proves that the plant does recognize iodine as a nutrient. Yeah, so from this gene expression, also predictions could be made on, on what exactly does iodine do in the plant. Can we predict why we see these phenotypical effects on iodine from the gene expression. And it can be done because the, the prediction which you can do looking at this gene expression pattern correlate closely to the beneficial effect that were published even before uh, in commercial crops on uh, addition of iodine in this micronutrient range. And I would simply argue this effect of uh, iodine on plant physiology and the visible effects on plant growth and development that we see could be sufficient proof that the plant can actually be hampered by its develop in its development by a deficiency of iodine and on the other part can benefit from the addition of iodine under iodine deficient circumstances. Now, but because we have this definition of iron and stout, 
also looked, uh, can the effect of iodine be replaced by another chemical compound, which is bromine, which is the sister compound to iodine. They are chemically very, very closely, very similar. But if you feed bromide to the plants instead of iodine, you do not see this gene expression uh, that we see with iodine uh, at all. And the third, but certainly not last, line of evidence in this paper is iodination of proteins in the plant. Now, this is maybe a difficult term, but iodination of proteins is actually a very, very basic metabolic function, which regulates the thyroid metabolism in humans and other animals, in fish and in birds. And the proof that is there now is that plants can iodinate proteins as well in a manner that is similar to how vertebrae do it. And that this does not only happen uh, only with one protein, but at least 82 proteins were identified uh, to which iodine can be covalently bound. So to go back to Annan and Stout's definition of a plant nutrient, it would require that uh, iodine is a component of an uh, essential plant constituent. Uh, and in this work, we found iodination of uh, subunits of enzymes that are very essential for the plant, like ATPase or Rubisco. So for us, the case is clear, but still it is not proven that plants will not be able to finish their life cycle. So iodine probably stands a poor chance of officially being recognized as an essential plant nutrient under the current definition, even if it's without a doubt that it's used by the plant and that it may be beneficial for crop growth and crop yields. And I think this is a very uh, clear and detailed description, but let's now jump ahead a little bit. You know? And in the paper, those of you who wish uh, to read it, you will find many more examples of this kind also for some of the other elements mentioned. You know? And the paper then also goes on discussing a potentially broader scope for a new definition that could also include more aspects of implications for animal and human health. So, Patrick, is that definition for mineral plant nutrients um, that you have come up with and what are some of the advantages that it has? Yeah, so I'm going to read the definition and then we'll we'll go back and talk a little bit about what the key differences are and why it matters. So the new definition that we collaboratively came up with is that a mineral plant nutrient is an element which is needed for plant growth and development and or for the quality attributes of the harvested product of a given plant species grown in natural or cultivated environments. So let me break that down a little bit. The first thing it does is specify that a plant nutrient is beneficial to plant growth and development. And it takes away the requirement that the plant uh, life cycle must be stopped for a nutrient, for a plant, uh, for an element to be described as a plant nutrient. That's important, as I mentioned before, because there's a lot of agricultural circumstances where completion of the life cycle is not our goal. Think of a lettuce crop, for example. We are selling the lettuce itself. We don't need it to go to seed. So that um, specification that a plant nutrient is something that benefits plant growth or development is important. The second part of that was that a, a plant nutrient could be classified as a nutrient or an element could be classified as a plant nutrient if it improves the quality attributes of the harvested product. That's also obvious. A lot of our products that we sell uh, in, in agriculture, the quality matters, the firmness, the texture, the color. But equally important and novel in this regard is that we also care about the quality of the product as a food. 
That is, does it contain all the nutrients that humans or animals need by, con by consuming that product? Selenium is a wonderful example of that. Selenium is important in human nutrition, as is iodine. Uh, and we are always interested that the foods we're feeding, we're eating, are optimal for the consumption or for the, the contributions they make to human or animal health. There's a couple of other additions to this definition. One of them is that it's species-specific. In the current definition of a plant nutrient derived from the essentiality criteria, a nutrient can only be on that list if it's required for all species. And we already know uh, many examples uh, in agriculture and biology where species have very different requirements. So we wouldn't expect a sugarcane crop growing in the Cerrado of Brazil in an acid soil to have exactly the same nutrient requirements uh, as an olive tree growing in an alkaline soil in Spain. Uh, there are differences, and this, this new definition recognizes that and recognizes that plant nutrient will be species-specific. And the final one is that there are certainly some growth conditions where different nutrients will be required by plants for their optimum productivity. And, and a good example of that uh, is something like aluminum or aluminium, depending on where you are in the world, uh, which is required by tea plants when grown in their natural environment of the high acidic soils in southern China. That is entirely relevant, obviously, to the productivity of tea, but it's unlikely that aluminum, aluminium will be essential in other environments. So I think we need to recognize how the environment and the species interacts with the function of a plant nutrient. Um, and I think this definition addresses that. Yeah, I think one thing we've got to be careful of is that the marketplace doesn't go crazy adding all sorts of nutrients into that list, some of which may be not needed, some of which may be toxic. So I think there is an absolute requirement that some sort of organization take the role on of helping um, arbitrate uh, what is a meaningful contribution uh, and what is not a meaningful contribution. Otherwise, you, you risk the commercial uh, exploitation of this expansion. I think this is a very timely uh, discussion. I think this new definition has many uh, advantages that could lead to quite a range of positive outcomes. And so I think we've heard today that this is the starting point also for a debate that is still to be had. And it should be led by the scientific community. It should also lead to hopefully a clearer understanding of what the experimental evidence would, that is needed would be required to occasionally review and adjust the list of plant nutrients. Uh, it is suggested that an independent body uh, of scientists, for example, through the International Plant Nutrition Council, should be given that mandate to periodically review new evidence and also through that then more clearly guide policymakers and industry and scientists uh, to make the right decisions for even nutrition in the wider, improving nutrition in the wider sense, not just plants, but also its impact on animals and humans. So with that, I would like to thank our two guests today. I encourage you to look at the paper. You will find a lot more useful information there. And most importantly, I invite you to join the debate and contribute your own opinions to this very important topic. Thank you for listening. <music>